0: Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Regarding our discussion this morning, we're going to be talking about chapters 6, 7 and 8. So two of those chapters are in Aramaic and one's in Hebrew. Now it's all going to be in English, of course. I don't know how to speak either Hebrew or Aramaic. But nevertheless it's a it's a bit of an interesting um, compilation, shall we say uh, so now now I note that Mike's down here and I've been sitting um, with with him during our um, our alpha crucius talks and and I'm just going to just going to note that that um, The book of Daniel, uh, the the chapters that are historical, in fact the first seven chapters, kind of form what's called a chiastic structure, right? So that's my nerd out word for this morning, chiastic, which means there's a mirror. There's a mirror uh, through the chapters, especially chapters uh, 2 through 7, right? So chapter 2 and chapter 7 kind of mirror each other. Chapter 2 of Daniel is about the, the statue with the four layers of materials, the gold head, the silver chest, you know, you remember? And chapter 7 is about the four beasts, and we'll talk about that. So there's a, a mirror between the two. And then chapters 3 and chapter 6. Chapter 3 is the fiery furnace. Chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. Both examples of where God rescues Daniel or his people out of, out of uh, danger. So we've got this interesting pattern. So the prophetic chapters concern that which is to come, obviously, at least from Daniel's point of view. And seem to very accurately describe the history, now history, of, of the, the coming times in Daniel's life. Um, and they also describe the kingdom of God, which sits above and beyond all human history, okay? It's truly eternal. What's very obvious from this selection of chapters is the book of Daniel isn't merely dealing with the events of his life and his friends, but um, it raises more general issues of the relationship between rule and sovereignty. Of, of the Lord, and those of the great human empires. Okay, so let's move on. Daniel chapter 6, which is Daniel in the lion's den. I'm going to give you a quick reading. I'm not going to read all this, three chapters. I'm sorry, it's too long. We're not going to cover it all in detail, but I'll give you some excerpts. So the first one is Daniel chapter 6, and I'll start from verse 16. And it says this, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king rose and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty." So I expect many of you have heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. So we're not going to cover all the details about how Daniel fell afoul of the administrators and got kind of trapped into being found guilty of breaking this law, which was obviously set up to serve for his demise. But anyway, chapter 6 is the final narrative chapter of the book of Daniel and the story opens with a new king on the throne. In fact, we have a whole new empire operating at this point and that is of the Medes and the Persians. So we were, Daniel was working for the Babylonians, change of management, Medes and Persians are the new boss. So as we'll see later, this effectively becomes the Persian Empire. It starts out as this joint empire, becomes the Persian Empire, but for now it's under the control of Darius the Mede. Daniel's operating as senior minister in the government, trusted by the king and with God's blessing. He's very competent. He's probably a bit too competent at least for those around him. He was in Babylon, but he wasn't Babylonian. Uh, He was excellent. Um, And beyond reproach in his behavior, his attitude to honesty and integrity, probably pretty offensive to his rivals, but for all the right reasons. Okay, so we know the story, and I just want to pull out a few details, which I think are really interesting. So the first thing is that Unlike the law under the Babylonian kings, right, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, they basically didn't really care about the law. They just, whatever they said became law. And if they changed their minds, well, the law was no longer there. But under the Medes and the Persians, the law is described as having a kind of divine power, right? It can never be revoked. Kings come and go, even priest kings, but the law endures. Ironically, the law, right, which is seen as this great symbol of power of the people who make it, ends up being, the, being the, a power that exercises rule over them. Even Darius finds himself trapped by the law of his own creation. And Daniel doesn't make a scene of public disobedience here, right, because he knew the law was aimed at him. But neither does he divert from his usual habit. And had he not had such a strong habit of of honouring God with his time and praying, he might have found it a bit easier to compromise here. might have been able to slip under the radar, but his enemies knew that he wouldn't. And, And that testifies to his fearless character and his unswerving commitment to the Lord. Interesting that the law cannot be avoided and condemns Daniel, even against the desire of the king, but the Lord saves him through the sentence, right? So he doesn't get sentenced to death. He gets sentenced to be thrown to the lions. That's what the law in in the text actually says. And so Daniel actually goes through that legal process. He actually is fully discharged under the law. So he's found guilty, he's sentenced. The sentence is carried out, but he survives. Does that remind you of anything else? It's actually kind of a a foretelling for the people of Israel it's a prophecy for the people of Israel because the the idea of the lion here it's always been associated with the kingdom of Medo-Persia first the Babylonians and then the Medo- uh, sorry first the Babylonians and so Israel was under the under the you know control of Babylon the lion which we'll see again later but Daniel getting out of the lion's den is like a a prophecy for Israel getting out from exile. And further, of course, um, Daniel's experience in the den is kind of a foretelling of Jesus himself facing the great lion, Satan who prowls around, sealed by a stone in a cave. But when the new morning dawned, he would emerge unharmed, having overcome death itself. So, Those who thought they could use the law for their own ends are destroyed along with their families. It's a pretty stark outcome. My parting comment for chapter 6 is that like Daniel, we should be resolute and constant in our abhorrence of that which is evil and our adherence to that which is good, whatever it costs. All right, so moving on. Chapter 7, the four beasts. I'm going to give you another short reading starting at verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. The four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground. So it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Okay, so chapter seven begins that part of the book concerning dreams and visions, obviously. Although it is the last book that's, that's ended, it's, it's the last part of this book-ended set of parallel chapters. So... We learn at the start here that this, this is the first year of Belshazzar's rule. Now, Belshazzar actually died back in chapter 5, okay, so now we're in chapter 7, so we're not talking in chronological order, so it's okay because the chapters are arranged uh, for meaning rather than a- according to time. So as mentioned earlier, this chapter parallels chapter 2, which is Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the image of gold and silver, the giant statue. Each of the layers in that statue correspond to one of these beasts, um, so we've got the four beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard and the awesome and terrible beasts. Most um, scholars identify the beasts as kings or kingdoms, uh, the kings or kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. Although we do get into some pretty murky connections there concerning the horns and especially the little horn, which I didn't mention in my reading. It's, it's further down in the text. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are jointly identified here as the lion with eagle's wings. And this corresponds to other imagery in Ezekiel and Hosea, which talk about the lion, Babylon, the lion. Uh, in chapter 4 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And this appears to speak to the idea of the wings being torn off. and But yet he's he's restored and therefore he's given the mind of a human. So this appears to have very clear connection to the Babylonians. The second beast, the bear, is the Medo-Persian Empire. It might have to do with its appetite. It was the largest empire to that point in history. Perhaps the three ribs are identified as previous conquests. Babylon itself, uh, Lydia and Egypt were um, attacked and, and, and subdued by the Medo-Persians. So the third beast, the leopard, is Alexander and the Greeks. Even though Alexander was only in charge for about 10 years, he quickly conquered all existing empires. And this speed is kind of alluded to by the four wings that are a part of the the beast. Uh, Alexander's kingdom was split into four after his death, which corresponds to the four heads. Although not all scholars agree with the alignment of the four heads to to, to, um, the four subsequent kingdoms. Some argue that the the heads represent four phases of rule. I'm not going to get into that because I'm not a scholar. But it's very interesting to think about that and, and, and the Greek Empire under Alexander and subsequently did split into four parts and I think it's a pretty obvious connection. So the fourth beast with iron teeth and ten horns. So there's a similarity there with the, the lower part of um, the statue in Daniel 2 because it had iron legs and it had ten toes, so iron teeth, ten horns. So it's a, it's a similar um, description. So those of you who've read and puzzled over the book of Revelation would recognise some of this imagery. The sea beast of Revelation is like a composite of these four beasts in Daniel 7, sort of their final form. The fourth beast is identified with Rome by, by most scholars, uh, but there is considerable difference of opinion. Identifying the horns is particularly difficult. And given the, the language similarity with Revelation, it does seem like the little horn that is alluded to here in Daniel 7 is a description of the Antichrist, but I don't have time to go into that, so I'm, we're going to skip over that for now. So there is an allusion to the creation account from Genesis here, right? We've got this idea of the, the waters, the churning waters and the wind over the waters. Does that sound familiar to you from Genesis? Um and so these beasts are coming out of the water like God brought the dry land out of, out of the water. The beasts are given authority to rule by God himself, right? Nothing happens without God arranging it. And this is very clear. The, the, whole, the whole idea with the beasts as being subject to God is very clearly described here. The wings torn off, given the mind, given authority to rule. Um, you know the the voice that says get up, go eat your fill to the bear. This is these empires are not operating under their own recognizance. They are they are under instruction. They are under authority. A- another a- a angle I think you can pursue here with these beasts is that they represent heavenly authorities and powers. Right. So elsewhere in Daniel we hear about the Prince of Persia, this spiritual power that Michael I think it was had to fight against. So there's a a sense in which, um, you know, this is the heart of this chapter. We see here in history, what we see in history is a reflection of that heavenly reality, Um, the ultimate reality. In many ways, these kingdoms were or are spiritual. They had their own gods, temples and beliefs and had set themselves up in opposition to the one true God. Now, my favourite part of Daniel chapter 7 is verse 13 and 14, which I didn't read to you, but I will now. It goes like this. I'm sure you recognise this language. The phrase son of man, interestingly, in both the Hebrew, I think it's uh, Ben Adam in the Hebrew, so from Adam, son of man. Um, It actually means um, a single member of humanity, right? Just a person, a single human being, Um, someone, right? It's... It's, it's actually just an, an example of humanity, an example of hum, uh, a human being. So that's what son of man means. Now, Jesus used this term to refer to himself no less than 31 times in the book of Matthew. And you'll recall that Matthew's aim in his gospel was to c- convince people, his own people, the Jews, that Jesus was the Messiah and not just the Messiah, but he was the divine son. Um, Jesus basically quotes Daniel 7, 13 during his trial. And when he does, proceedings end. There's nothing more that needs to be said. It's a mic drop moment. I'm God. That's basically what he's saying. I'm him. I'm the guy. I'm the guy in Daniel 7. It's no exaggeration. This is a quote from one of the commentaries I read. It's no exaggeration to say that no other concept in the Old Testament, not even the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, has elicited a more prolific literature Of all the figures used in the Old Testament to designate the coming deliverer, king, priest, branch, servant, seed, none is more profound than son of man. Here is a vision of man as he was intended to be, perfectly embodying all the potential, all his potential in obedience to his creator. I love that. Now, my parting comment for chapter 7 is to focus on the words of the angel. The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. There is no reason why revolutions or new governments should disturb us much. The Son of Man reigns forever. Okay, moving on. Chapter 8. The ram and the goat. Now, let me read uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 8. In the third year of Belshazzar's reign... I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself at the citadel of Susa in the province of a lamb. In the vision, I was standing beside the Uli Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram, furiously striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power.' The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Until It, it grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. Okay, so... Chapter eight is after chapter one, the next chapter in Hebrew, right? So we switch back to Hebrew now, and it describes more beasts. This time, however, however we don't have any bears or leopards or lions. Uh, rather, we got the ram and the goat, and which were sacrificial animals. The vision is dated to the third year of Belshazzar's rule, so Belshazzar's still going here, right? He died back in chapter five, but here in chapter eight, he's still there. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking around 550 BC. The vision is easier to understand than the one in chapter 7, partly because of the interpretation we're given and partly because um, whoops, ancient records show a remarkable correspondence between details of this vision and the events as they actually happen, right? So we're, we're in a good position here because we can read Daniel and then we can look at what we know about history. And you know what? It works out. It works out really well. So Daniel sees a vision of a great ram which is subsequently attacked by a powerful single-horned goat. So the ram has two horns, right? So we're talking about the Medo-Persians. And it says how one horn got bigger but it grew up later. That's the Persian Empire taking over from the Medes. Um, And you'll note that it's described as pushing in three directions. Now, we we heard the number three back in Chapter 7 with the bear with three ribs in its mouth. So... um, The thought is that we're talking about um, three conquests for the Medo-Persian Empire. So the goat has a single horn, represents the Greeks under Alexander. So now we've got the goat and the leopard beast describing the kingdom of the Greeks. Um, And so the defeat of Babylon and the death of Belshazzar, right, described in Chapter 5 by the combined, combined armies of Persia and Media happened in 539 BC. So Persia ruled till 333, so 200 years, and and then Alexander arrived. Uh, Now, after phenomenal success in battle, which saw him effectively just defeat everybody, anyone, everyone, he defeated them all, Uh, including the Persians, Alexander died at 32, and with no obvious heir, his four generals took over the kingdom. So Lysimachus took much of Asia Minor, Cassander took Macedonia, Ptolemy, Ptolemy right, he took Egypt and lastly Seleucus took Syria, Babylonia and the eastern lands. So now chapter 8 does describe the desolation of the temple which is sometimes associated with the end times but it clearly happened um, both through the Seleucids and obviously later in AD 70. So but the mention in verse 11 appears to coincide with the rise of this king Antiochus Epiphanes. So he was a Seleucid He took over and took the name Epiphanes, which means manifestation of God. So he had a pretty high opinion of himself. And you can see where this is going, right? Um, So he took over the empire, which ruled the former Jewish lands. And one of the trademarks of Alexander and his generals was the Greekification of everything that they took over. So they set up a whole bunch of cities and called them all Alexandria. And then they saw about pushing Greek culture on all um, all of the peoples that they ruled, including the Jews. Uh, But Antiochus had a problem because he was particularly passionate about this and he hated the Jews. So put those together and he was the one who went in and set up the idol of Zeus inside the temple in Jerusalem and he spilled pig's blood all over the altar. He basically did everything he possibly could to cheese everybody off in a big way. And so that gave rise to a rebellion, right? So led by uh, Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabean Rebellion took place in 165 BC after which and they won right the Jews kicked the Seleucids out uh, and that was in 165 BC after which the temple was purified and then rededicated right so in New Testament times this was celebrated as the feast of dedication but today it's called Hanukkah right so that's the Jewish festival of Hanukkah So that all sounds very tidy, a tidy interpretation of the vision, but it sort of goes off the rails a bit since the angel goes on to mention it concerns the time of the end, uh, the distant future. Reading from verse 23, it describes a completely wicked, fierce-looking king who will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. But Antiochus Epiphanes was destroyed by human power, wasn't he? So are we talking about Antiochus or are we talking about somebody else? we Are talking about the Antichrist again? I'll leave that with you. Got to, I'm out of time, people, right? <laughs> All right, so wrapping up, what are the takeaways here? Look, it is a bit difficult to tie these three chapters together. Uh, we're talking about narrative and then we're talking about these, these really amazing prophecies. But I think we can say the following. From our human perspective, the affairs of great empires seem cosmic and inexorable, right? They do what they want. They make their plans, and we we just we just get swept along. Uh, the kings and governments do what they want and laugh laugh at everybody. But God plays at a bigger table than even these kings can imagine. No king can challenge Him or even comprehend His designs. He's across it all. He's in charge of it all. All of these empires serve His purpose. Kingdoms with all their power. So that's the first thing. Kingdoms with all their power and sophistication. They're described in these, in these passages as beasts. You know, this kind of mindless, God is my belly kind of thing. They're, they're barely functional. Um, all they do is wreck things and eat things, basically. Uh, trampling on people in their lives. But the true government, the true king is a man, the God-man, whose dominion will never end. So remember that all of this stuff that we can pour over as history was to happen dozens or even hundreds, maybe thousands of years in Daniel's future. Right? So we we can sit here and look at it all and go, well, that's really interesting. But just remember, this was all prophetic. Daniel didn't see hardly any of this stuff happen. He obviously saw the end of the Babylonian Empire and he might have had a twig to what the lion with the wings, the winged lion represented. But what about all the others? When he recorded these visions, there was no Medo-Persian Empire. There was no Greek Empire. Greeks were just like this little backwater, over on the other side of Asia Minor. Who saw that happening? And then the Romans. No one saw that. This is hundreds of years before their their rise. And all of this is worked out. And so what does that tell you? Our God is in charge of history, all right, and it serves his purpose. So that's it for me. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. I uh, I don't have a question for you, but while Phoebe comes up, Maybe we can talk about uh, how we can take comfort from looking at history and seeing how it serves God's purposes.
1: Matt, you. I'm Phoebe and we're going to go forward now on mostly Daniel chapter 6 and actually just want to focus on just one verse of Daniel chapter 6, which is Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 and I'm going to read it out to you. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, this is, about, you know, must worship Darius the king or be thrown into the lion's den. So when Daniel had learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. I want to hone in on just one little sentence here. It's just six words, but we can learn so much from them. That Daniel prayed just as he had done before. Daniel has come from a position of respect, of power, dignity, at the time of this new threat. He's survived capture and exile in Babylon. He made a name for himself not under one king, but two Babylonian kings. He survived multiple possible death threats. He survived the fall of Babylon, and now under this new king, Darius, he's made a new name for himself. Things look pretty good for Daniel up until this point. But suddenly, he's at risk of having it all pulled out from under him. But Daniel continues in faithful steadfastness just as he had done before. Daniel's a pretty amazing politician. He's had some pretty impressive highs and lows on his career reel at this point. And his success is not that he's some political chameleon who knows how to talk his way out of trouble. No, Daniel has lived a life of integrity and honour and that has been recognised by those around him. But it all comes crashing down when this new decree is issued – And by the law of the land, Daniel is ordered either to compromise on his convictions and turn his back on God, or risk death. And what is Daniel's response? He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. When things were tough, Daniel gave thanks, just as he had done before, when things were good. When he was commanded to compromise on his convictions, Daniel maintained integrity Just as he had done before. When his circumstances shifted for the worse in the depth of the valley, Daniel kept steadfast, just as he had done before when he was on the mountaintop. Now, I have a tendency to share holiday snaps when I'm preaching because I just love to be obnoxious like that. I'm going to show you some now. So last week my seven-year-old son Archer and I took an overnight hiking trip to Mount Kosciuszko where we hiked for two days and camped overnight and we carried the tent with us. Thank you Lani, she lent us practically all of her hiking gear. Now, I have this grand parenting idea in my head that stretching your children way outside of their comfort zones and pushing them to complete physical tasks that most adults would find a challenge is a really, really, you know, solid parenting strategy to build resilience and prepare your children for the real world. (laughs) Time will tell whether I'm on the mark with this or totally off base. Anyway, I had been watching the weather forecast carefully over the Easter weekend, and if you were here, you know it was a pretty wild and wet weekend. There's, you know, a cold snap came through. There was a downpour here, and down in Kosciuszko, there was snowstorms all weekend. Now, I'm never one to be put off by the weather, so I decided that, you know, if we just defer our hike by one day, it'll be fine. We'll do our hike as we planned. Well, we had a fantastic time. There was snow everywhere, as you can see. It was bitterly cold but it didn't stop us one bit. The the cloud lifted, we had fantastic views, we made it to camp, we set up the tent and we even had a decent night's sleep. And all my ideas about resilience building proved correct. That was Tuesday. <laughs> then came Wednesday. So when we woke up on Wednesday morning, we were stiff and sore everywhere. The fog rolled in and eventually with that came the rain. Archer's ankles were stiff and sore after the cold night and he was crying, saying he couldn't walk. Well, we've got sort of about 14 kilometres ahead of us at this point, so I laced up his boots for him, helped him put on his pack and told him, up the mountain we go, son. Needless to say, it was pretty miserable for the first few hours and I was starting to have some very dark thoughts around my parenting philosophies (laughs) regarding resilience. Now, anyone who's done a decent amount of walking knows that when you start a day with stiff sore joints, you just need to get moving and that as you warm up, that stiffness eases and the discomfort goes away. My son, Archer, unfortunately didn't, didn't know this. So we had a pretty miserable trudge back up the mountain. Now, because I'm a mother who not only wants to teach my children resilience but also wants to teach them the power of prayer, Archer and I, we sat down together, we prayed together that his sore ankles would get better. Once we prayed, I went back to resilient mum mode. He just had to put on his boots and get moving. And as he got moving, persisting through the discomfort, it's amazing, his ankles warmed up, they stopped aching, and suddenly the hike became fun again, and we did make it back to the car. So why am I telling you this story? It is not in order to get a stern talking to by all the worried parents in the room, though perhaps that's coming. Now, I think perhaps there's a Daniel message in here. Because when you're on the mountaintop, when the weather's beautiful, when the view is spectacular, it's easy to stay motivated, to put on your pack and walk. But when your ankles hurt, when the weather closes in, when your pack is heavy, can you continue just as you have done before? Daniel experienced every imaginable high and low point along his journey. There were times it would have been easier, almost seemed like the sensible thing to do, to capitulate, to not rock the boat and to go along with the crowd. But regardless of his circumstances, Daniel remained steadfast, remained faithful. At the low points of, the life, of his life, he continued to pray, to give thanks and to honour and worship God just as he had done before at the high points. And just like Archer learned on the side of Mount Kosciuszko, sometimes when life gives you figurative sore ankles, the solution is to pray, to put on your boots and to get moving. Everything within you wants to curl up in your sleeping bag and block the world out. But that's not going to help your sore ankles. If you want to get those ankles feeling better, pray, put on your boots and get moving. Now, you get that this is a metaphor, right? I'm not telling everybody you've got to start up aerobics class on a broken ankle. It's a metaphor. But if you are dealing with figurative sore ankles, pray, put on your boots, get moving, get moving, get praying, Get worshipping, get reading your Bible, get thanking, get giving, get meeting with fellow believers, just get moving. We need to pray, we need to put on our boots, we need to get moving. How do we put on our boots spiritually? What are spiritual boots? Well, the Bible actually tells us about spiritual shoes, the shoes of peace. We're told about them in Ephesians 6 verse 15, that as we put on the armour of God, we are called to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The thing thing about hiking boots that differentiates them from other shoes is that they are specifically designed to hold you steadfast on even the most unstable of ground. The shoes of peace that we are called to put on are no different. The world might be shaking around us. The ground might feel like it's falling out from under us. Life might feel like a mountain that we can never summit. But the shoes of peace are specifically designed by the one who gives them to hold us steadfast through even the most unstable of circumstances. They are a peace that passes understanding. So where do we get these special boots? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 26 and 27, But the advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I have told you. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. The shoes of peace that we are called to put on are the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the more our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit, the more we will be equipped with the shoes of peace. So once you've prayed, once you've put on your boots, get moving. And the more you move, the more you break through those aching muscles and stiff joints. The more you exercise that muscle, the stronger it gets. The more you practice faithfulness and steadfastness, the better you get at it, and the more naturally it starts to come. Now, when we first started hiking with Archer, we didn't do these challenging overnight hikes. We started with much easier walks, and it's only as he's gotten stronger and more experienced that we have taken him on more challenging but also more exciting experiences Because we elevate the challenge to stretch him according to where he is at. Our faith is no different. As much as we'd like to coast in cruise control in our faith, it never works that way. Have you noticed that? Just when you've come through one season of growth, be prepared for the next one. Because the challenge elevates to stretch us according to where we're at. It's not actually that dissimilar to a marriage Imagine if we approached marriage with the idea that, well, I've been married a while now and I read that book and I did that course a few years ago. I probably don't need to work on my marriage anymore. it would be in strife pretty quickly. God actually gives us the marriage covenant as a picture or a shadow of what our relationship with him is called to be like. Just like a married couple will spend their entire lives working on improving their marriage, it's not something that they can just give up on because they've done it once before, We will spend our entire lives working on knowing and understanding God and his heart for us. So I'm sorry to say, but in our faith, we're never actually going to get to cruise control. If you feel like your faith is in cruise control, then it's probably in need of a good shake-up. One final point I want to make from Daniel 6 is that it's not over until it's over. I don't want you all to walk out of here today miserable because Phoebe painted this grim picture of our Christian walk where it's constant hardship because that's not the case at all. No, we recognise that in our walk with Christ, it is completely normal that there will be highs and lows, mountains and valleys and a constant fluctuation in the seasons. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. And when we can grasp this, Instead of being discouraged by it, we can actually be encouraged in the knowledge that we're normal. That we don't have to have this whole Christian thing down pat just yet. We've got our whole lives to learn it. And perfection isn't for now. Perfection is something that is attained for each of us only when Christ calls us home. And in the meantime, it's okay to be growing and it's okay to be learning. James 1 verse 2 to 4 sums it up beautifully. It says, consider it pure pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we can be encouraged when we look at our lives. Instead of looking at When we face challenges and saying, oh, why do I just keep slipping up or feel like we're somehow not good enough when we're faced with challenges again and again? We can be encouraged that whatever we're going through is a season. It might be a particularly rubbish season, but it's a season. It's like the 100 year old oak tree. He doesn't stress out every year when winter comes and he loses all his leaves. I don't know why he has to be a he, but he is in this example. Experience tells him that it's a season. He holds steadfast through the shifting seasons. And as surely as winter comes every year, so spring follows. And with that, new life, new growth, new hope. After a life of highs and lows, Daniel knew this too. He had learned the secret to steadfastness, that no matter what season he was to continue as he had done before. And as surely as Daniel was brought low and thrown into the lion's den, the next morning came and he came back out again. So if you're in a particularly wintry season right now, I want to encourage you that it's a season, even if it's a particularly rubbish one. Hold steadfast because as surely as spring follows winter, there is another season around the corner. And with that, new life, new growth, new hope. It was from imprisonment, that Paul wrote in Philippians 4, to 13. I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I, now ho- I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me.